Hi, my name is Dan Hogue, and I love music. I love listening to it, talking about it, reading up on it, and making weekly top 10 charts with songs I like at the moment. I can only come to one conclusion. Music is my radar. Hello everyone and welcome back to Music Is My Radar, a podcast for music lovers near and far. Here we are in quarter three of 2001, spanning the songs that I took to number one for the months of July, August, and September. Yes, this was the month that had the event that defined my generation, the September 11th attacks on New York City. For the most part, it did not inform my music habits, at least on the charts, but I will touch on some honorable mentions that were very much inspired by it, and the final number one of this quarter was inspired by that as well. For the time being, let's get started with the number ones. The first one was a two-week run at number one from the week ending July 14th. It's the Stone Temple Pilots with Days of the Week. This song hailed from their summer 2001 release, Ugh. Shangri-La-Di-Da. It was a dumb album title then, a dumb album title now. No wonder it tanked. Okay, so maybe tanked is a little harsh, but it didn't keep up their momentum from their 1999 comeback number four. Between the two albums, number four and Shangri-La, I'd say Shangri-La is more consistent across the board, though it doesn't have the low points or the high points of number four. I always thought the first four songs on the album served as a career retrospective of Stone Temple Pilots, the quote-unquote grunge of core, the more 90s alt-rock of purple, the psychedelic trippiness of tiny music, and the new metal-ish leanings of number four. This song, Days of the Week, also the first single, represents the purple side of things. It totally sounds like something that would come off that album. It's not a song that merits deep analysis, so I'm not going to give it much of one. Like the song title indicates, it's about days of the week and stuff that happens on each day. It's been used to death in Lady Madonna, Friday on My Mind, Friday I'm in Love, you name it. But it's a fun, hooky melody with enough rock to keep it from getting too poppy. That was Stone Temple Pilots at their sweet spot, and it really fit in well with my summer, working, riding my bike to driver's ed each day. Spending the last weeks in my childhood home before we would move to my grandma's old home in downtown Boise. Sometimes it just doesn't get much deeper than what a song means to you and what you were going through at the time. And that's all I'll say about Days of the Week. Not an essential song, but it's fun. 
and it's one of the last dents that Stone Temple Pilots would ever make on my charts as they stopped recording for nine years because Scott Weiland's drug habits were really catching up to him. A few years after this, he jumped aboard Velvet Revolver with members of Guns N' Roses, and Stone Temple Pilots did reunite in 2010 for an album that took me forever to listen to, only about a couple years ago before seeing them live, with their new lead singer, because in 2015, Scott Weiland's drug addictions eventually took his life as he OD'd. A bit of a bummer, but sadly not surprising. At least I'll always have the music and the memories. And for what it's worth, the 2018 album was pretty good, and the live show was fun in 2018. Jeff Gutt really had his Scott Weilandisms down. He was totally channeling him. Anyway, moving on. Coming up next at number one for a week, we got a new artist to this list, R.E.M. Their one-week number one was the 2001 single, Imitation of Life. Charades, pop, scale, water, high and sand, named by a poem, Imitation of Life. Like a coy and a frozen I'm faced with a similar quandary as I was with I Did It by Dave Matthews Band. That is, if I say I like this song, does that not make me an R.E.M. fan? Maybe I haven't heard enough opinions on this particular song, but it seems like some people I know dislike this one. They say it's too R.E.M. by numbers, or sounds like someone doing an R.E.M. cover band. I think someone commented that the first line, charades pop skill, water hyacinth, named by a poet, imitation of life. Sounded like Michael Stipe doing a self-parody of himself and his famously cryptic lyrics. Really, I don't care. The difference between this and I Did It is, I'm not really a Dave Matthews Band fan at all. Whereas R.E.M., I was only getting started in becoming a really huge fan of these guys at this point. Now, growing up, R.E.M. was a band that was in my periphery. I knew of them from my two older brothers and some of the crossover pop songs they had, like Losing My Religion, or everyone's favorite, Shiny Happy People. I believe what happened was that same 80s radio station I talked about in past episodes, they had played a song of theirs I hadn't heard before, Orange Crush, and I instantly fell in love with it. It peaked at number four on my charts back in May of that year. And as with Weezer and Stone Temple Pilots, they had a new album in 2001 called Reveal. It's an alright album. It shows them moving into elder statesman status, very mellow as a whole. Imitation of Life is actually one of the more upbeat songs on there. As for the argument that it's R.E.M. by numbers, guitarist Peter Buck might have a point in your favor. He admitted after recording the song that the chord progression, especially in the verses, was very reminiscent of their 1985 song Driver 8, which, spoiler alert, might be on the next episode of this series. Whether it is or not doesn't really matter to me. To me, it's a pleasant summery song. Just like with Days of the Week, it reminded me of that summer, and 
That's all I really have to say about that. It's RM's first number one, and certainly not their last. Going into August, we got five straight number ones that were only one week on top. A lot of turnover in those days. Starting us off is John Fogarty with his crazy little song, Zanes Can't Dance. For the second time in 2001, we got a He Did What? Number one. The first one being Cruisin' by Michael Nesmith. However, Zan's Can't Dance has a bit more story to it. See, John Fogarty was the lead singer, pretty much the lead everything, of Creedence Clearwater Revival. From a period of 1968 to 1971, they were one of the biggest American rock groups out there. Hit single after hit single. Five really good albums and a couple others that weren't so good. As with a lot of young bands at the time, they signed away their rights to some other guy. In this case, Saul Zantz, the head owner of Fantasy Records. After the group disbanded in 1972, Fogarty put out a few solo albums, but spent about 10 years away from the rock business. Apparently, much of that time were legal wranglings for the rights of his own music with Saul Zantz. He reemerged in 1985 with Centerfield, which had a couple of hits, The Old Man Down the Road, which I'll talk about later, and that unforgettable title track, well known from any minor league baseball game you've ever been to. A couple of other songs from the album, including Zanz Can Dance, show Fogarty attacking Saul Zanz. He, of course, is the Zanz who can't dance in this song. While the rest of the album was mostly interchangeable with his stuff in CCR, this one is a total oddball. John testing his waters in the new wave field, so to speak. He is credited with playing all the instruments on this album, so that's probably him doing the amateurish sounding keyboard and drum programming. But it's kind of cute, kind of like those lo-fi They Might Be Giants albums, where if they were more produced, it'd probably sound worse, as we find out in John Fogarty's next album, Eye of the Zombie, in 1986. But I digress. Regardless, it's catchier than catchy. And of course, it got John Fogarty in deep doo-doo as Zan sued him for defamation. Thus, on later pressings, like the cassette tape I borrowed from Dad, how I found out about this song, it was retitled and re-recorded as Vans Can't Dance. And in another ridiculous turn of the story, Zan's tried to sue John Fogarty for plagiarizing a CCR number, Run Through the Jungle, on a solo hit, The Old Man Down the Road. Logic being that he still owned the CCR songs and John Fogarty was on a different label by then. I wish this could have been on live court TV or something, because allegedly John Fogarty brought his guitar to the stand and played both songs back to back, and he eventually won the argument. Just silly litigation stuff. But hey, at least an earworm came of it, right? The second number one song in August 
Let's welcome the first to not last time of these guys, The Who. Their song is You Better You Bet. I'll admit, this is a weird choice to have the first number one song be a 1981 single that was after Keith Moon died. But hey, not like the charts have any logic, mine or nationally. This might sound a little silly, but I think what finally got me over the edge and really delving into The Who was CSI Las Vegas, debuted on TV in 2000, and the theme song was Who Are You, starting a grand tradition of Whatever CSI city it is, having a different Who song as the theme, good times. I'd already known that song from rock radio, but hearing it every week from my parents' TV, it ended up landing at number 8 for a week back in May of my charts. How I came to find this one, I'm not quite as sure. I'm guessing maybe I was looking at charts and that title, You Better You Bet, just looked quirky. And indeed, it did hit the top 20 in March of 1981. So it was a successful radio single, even if you never hear it on the radio. And speaking of Who Are You, that song came out three years before You Better You Bet, and I've always kind of lumped that song as a sequel to Who Are You. Both are confessional and fast tempo from the pen of Pete Townsend. My interpretation was the protagonist of Who Are You, who'd spent that song waking up, not knowing where he was, policemen knocking at his door, yelling at punks. By this point, he'd settled down and was just trying to get a normal life with the one he loves. And looking more at the lyrics, it does lend itself to a midlife crisis that Pete was going at the time. His marriage was not doing so well. He was seeing someone on the side much younger than him. Could just be about finding that youthful love again. It's full of little Pete lyrics that I love. I'm not into your passport pictures. I just like your nose. Pretty sure she was saying that to him because... You seen the schnauzer on Pete Townsend? Ooh boy. And he's drunk himself blind to the sound of old T-Rex, that glam band. And then after that line he goes, oh, who's next? Because get it, their album, Who's Next? Of course, lest I forget, that's not Pete on vocals, that's Roger Daltrey, who was Pete's mouthpiece in The Who. Although this album did come out a year after Pete Townsend's best solo album, at least from what I've heard, Empty Glass where I could easily see that song slotting in that album with Pete's rye vocals. In fact, it's not too dissimilar to that solo hit from that album, Let My Love Open the Door. Just for kicks and giggles, here's a sample of that one. Oh, 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 
so dorky. That actually was number two on my charts in June 1999 for a couple weeks. That was before it became a staple of mediocre rom-com trailers this world over. But yeah, good choice. That song wouldn't have worked with Roger singing You Better You Bet's More Who-like. And surprisingly, it's endured over the years. When I saw them live last October in Seattle, they dug that one up. It's evidently a favorite of Roger's. He likes singing it. And he definitely relishes those You Better many parts of the song. They wouldn't go on much longer as a group in the 80s, but for now, this was a good one. Next up for a week at number one, it's Moby featuring Gwen Stefani of No Doubt fame. Here's Southside. See myself in the falling home. See the light come over now. In the pouring rain I watch hope come over me Okay, so, Moby. So, when Natural Blues hit number 6 in 2000, I talked about that on my honorable mentions, and about how Moby's album Play was notable in that every song on that album was licensed and used in some commercial. Play was actually his fifth album. He had released four earlier Electronica albums throughout the 90s, and naturally had more success overseas than domestically, most notably in the UK. His 1991 single, Go, was top 10, but I've heard that, and it's basically standard rave music that was all over the charts at the time in England. By 1999, Moby saw a play as sort of a last-ditch attempt, because his prior two albums did not sell all that well. And upon first release, Play was looking to go the same direction, until Moby's record label made the decision to license all those songs for use in commercials or movie trailers. By 2000, it was a sleeper hit all across the world, and actually Southside was the seventh single coming out late that year. I believe in this case I heard enough on the radio that I just kept listening to it. It's one of several songs on Play and his next album where Moby actually sang slash spoke, and there was heavy use of guitar, so it was more like alternative rock than techno. And the song itself and the music video, of course, ironic. I was first familiar with the music video where Moby and Gwen Stefani were on these elaborate bling-bling backgrounds, but showed the wizard behind the curtains and how fake they all looked and really were. And according to Moby, the song lyrics are about kids who are so desensitized to stimuli or violence that they don't really know what's going on around them. It could be violent or whatever else. To that I say, eh, sure, why not? I just see it as total late 90s sing-along, ironic type stuff. I obviously didn't think to listen too hard. And oh yeah, Gwen Stefani. This will be the only appearance of Gwen Stefani on any of my charts. And at the time, I thought she was a has-been herself. Because I obviously knew about the singles from Tragic Kingdom in 96, especially Don't Speak, 
but I also knew that they had a sophomore slump, no doubt did, in 2000, return to Saturn. But little did I know that No Doubt and Gwen Stefani's big, big, big comeback was just around the corner. So, nice effort on the song, Gwen, but I'm still never forgiving you for Hollaback Girl. And I better move on, because if I have to talk about that song, I'm gonna have to get a new laptop and microphone, because they'll be smashed against the wall. Fuck Hollaback Girl. Moving on. Hey, we got another artist that I like that hasn't hit number one yet. Hitting number one for a week in late August, it's the Foo Fighters with Stacked Actors and Gimme Stitches. Here's a bit of Stacked Actors. Stacked actors, stacked to the rafters, line up the bastards, all I want is the truth. Hey, hey, now, can you fake it? Can you make it look like we won? Hey, hey, now, can you take it? So one thing I never understood, they call themselves the Foo Fighters, but are they fighting in favor of Foo, or are they fighting Foo? I mean, what's the deal with that? Coming up next, jokes about airline food. Anywho, much like Green Day and Weezer, Foo Fighters were a band from the 90s that I had mentally forgotten about or didn't pay much attention to until this year. My middle brother was in high school during the first two albums the self-titled debut, and The Color and the Shape, and those albums were a pretty big deal to him. In fact, I think I heard him say that Everlong might be one of his favorite songs of all time. A controversial stand, I know. So yes, I was familiar enough with Dave Grohl's band, but unlike Green Day or Weezer, Foo didn't have an album in 2000 or 2001. This one came off their 1999 release, There Is Nothing Left to Lose. At the time, the only song I knew was Learn to Fly, which for some reason I hated at the time. I don't know why, maybe I just thought it was too happy and whatnot for them. But silly me, it's a perfectly good song. Maybe I had a feeling the song would grow on me and that the rest of the album would be pretty nice. So I ended up getting it the summer 2001. And the songs from that album I took at number one were not the poppy ones. Stacked Actors was the intense opener, and Gimme Stitches is a mid-tempo one somewhere in the middle of the album. I'll focus more on Stacked Actors because I really like that song from the first time I heard it. It starts off with that hard riff, then the verses it goes to this faux bossa nova, which totally makes sense when you listen to the lyrics, in which Dave Grohl completely slags the Hollywood culture. He had written it after living in Hollywood for a year and a half, and just disgusted how phony a lot of the people were, and how the Jet Set lifestyle just bugged him. I probably would have come to that conclusion without reading song facts, but... Good for Dave Grohl for clearing up the air. Then he whispers out the title, Stacked Actors, gets more and more intense, and then the riff comes back in and it's just Foo Fighters shouting glory. It's the best song on the album, in my opinion. At the time, people were saying it was almost like an homage to Cracked Actors from David Bowie's album, Aladdin Sane. Some of the lyrical themes are similar, looking at Hollywood from an outsider's perspective, but Cracked Actor is more glam in sound since that was David Bowie's Ziggy-adjacent period. But yeah, There Is Nothing Left to Lose is a fine album, and for the moment, the Foo Fighters were in my good books. Stay tuned. Well, the week ending September 1st, 2001, I start my junior year in high school, 
And say, what better to kick off this momentous occasion with that smart aleck Nick Lowe, here's Cruel to be Kind. Nick Lowe, kind of a big deal in a lot of the music I like. He's a singer-songwriter, musician, and producer. His most famous production work being the first five albums of Elvis Costello's career, from My Aim is True up to Trust. In addition, he played with a few bands, including Brinsley Schwartz, some pub rock group in the early 70s that I haven't heard yet, and Rockpile in the late 70s with Dave Edmonds, kind of a rockabilly but new wave type group. I heard one of their albums. It was all right. In addition, he had a solo career, which was kind of confusing in the late 70s because both he and Edmonds recorded albums with Rockpile under their own names, but Rockpile recorded their own album about a year afterwards. Confusing. But hey, cruel to be kind. It was Nick Lowe's only top 40 hit here in the States, and one of several that he had in the UK. And it's just power pop goodness from start to end. I love me some propulsive acoustic guitars that this one has, and sarcastic slash wry love lyrics that Nick Lowe's known for. I had read that he envisioned this song originally as an R&B type song, like Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes or the OJs. I'd like to have heard that demo. I think he did the right thing in recording it like this. I was familiar with this song actually a few years earlier, in the mid-90s, when I was watching that show Big 80s on VH1 that would just show a half-hour, hour block of music videos. And they showed the video for this one a couple times, despite clearly being from 1979. Cheaters. It shows the wedding between him and Carlene Carter, who was the daughter from June Carter's first marriage before Johnny Cash. It's actual wedding footage interspersed with silly reenactments, with him and the band, and some band members made cameos as a chauffeur and other roles. Even though this was his biggest American hit, I think the song he's most well known for is probably one he wrote, What's So Funny About Peace, Love, and Understanding, memorably covered by Elvis Costello, and covered in frantic karaoke style by Bill Murray in Lost in Translation. Yeah, I'd say Nick Lowe's had a pretty good career. Drink one to him. Going into September, we finally have a two-week number one. It's The Who, and they top the charts with the kids are all right, and I can't explain. Here's the kids are all right. I don't mind the guys dancing with my girl. That's fine. I know I'm all pretty well. But I know sometimes I must get high. 
yeah, I suppose in a perfect world, this would be the ideal first number one for The Who on my charts. But so it goes. Both of these songs were from the famous compilation album Meaty Beaty Big and Bouncy, aka my introduction to the glory years of The Who. And actually, these two songs are one and two on the album. Kicks off with I Can't Explain and then goes on to The Kids Are Alright. I Can't Explain was The Who's first single, at least the first under their name, The Who, and with a big breakout hit in the UK hitting the top 10. Although Pete Townsend admitted that he deliberately nicked the kink sound run writing the song, especially You Really Got Me, because they share the same manager, Shell Tommy. It's still a great classic. An ode to teenage inarticulation and not being able to communicate to the girl you love or think you love. It has long, long endured as a staple of their live set, usually the opening number or close to it. Indeed, they started the concert with this one when I saw them in Seattle last October. But to be honest with you, as much as that song is great, I actually prefer The Kids Are Alright. It was recorded later on in the year 1965, then I can't explain. It ended up on their first album, My Generation, at the end of that year. I'd been under the impression that it was just a really, really, really good album track, but turns out they did release it as a single, albeit six months after the song had appeared on the album, which is probably why it didn't do so well on the charts. Even in the UK, it just barely missed the top 40. But no matter, it's one of my favorite Who songs of all time. Even more so than My Generation, Shock of Shockers. It's an amazing melody, and lyrics that aren't super conventional. It's okay if another guy dances with his girl, because you know the kids are alright. And that just wonderful line, bells chime, I know I gotta get away. I'm guessing bells chime was probably a stand-in for actual bells, which they couldn't afford, but that's just me speculating. Even though it wasn't a huge hit single, it became a classic in the Who canon, as something of an anthem for the mod subculture. After all, their 1979 documentary was named after that, so there's gotta be something to it. Not to end on a downer, but on the second week of this number one run, a very terrible thing happened in American history, and I'll definitely get to it by the time this episode is out. But for now, let's move on. Two more chart toppers to see out September. Here's the first one for one week from that Pinkerton album, Weezer with I'm Tired of Sex slash The Good Life. Sample provided is from Tired of Sex. I'm tired of having sex so tired I'm spread so thin I don't know who I am I am Monday night I'm making gin Tuesday night I'm making men Wednesday night I'm making Jasmine So why can't I be You may recall in the previous episode, I talked about really getting into Hashpipe and Weezer's Green album that came out that year. As I said on that episode, Pinkerton completely passed me by in 1996. After having an unexpected success with the Blue album in 1994 and 1995, Rivers Cuomo wanted to go in a completely different direction for Pinkerton. He ditched the pop-friendly production of Rick Ocasek from The Cars, settling on producing himself, and made a very raw, very personal album that is not shiny or happy in the least. A slight correction, 
Rivers actually started going to Harvard during the making of this album. It wasn't after Pinkerton. That late Ivy League collegiate experience did yield quite a bit of material on Pinkerton, talking about how living the life of a rock star kind of sucks, but the transition from that to an Ivy League dude, and also big-time relationship struggles, kind of continuing the maybe sorta incel lyrics of no one else from the Blue album. The album kicks off with Tired of Sex that sets the tone right away. It starts off with feedback and is not what you call catchy. Apparently it was written about dealing with groupies and having what he thought was meaningless sex, but no real connection. It's right up there with Uncomplicated from Elvis Costello's Blood and Chocolate as far as first songs on an album that definitely aren't single material, but let you know right away what you're in for for the rest of the album. Meanwhile, the other song, The Good Life, sounds to me like his attempt to write something closest to a hit single from the album. It sounds slightly more radio-friendly than anything else. And actually, the album did rush release the single to try and help flagging album sales. Didn't really help, but it's a good song anyways. Where Rivers admits he kind of does miss the rock star lifestyle, as opposed to what he was at the time. He referred to himself as an Ivy League loner. So yeah, the album's pretty confused sounding. And I don't think I gravitated to it that much at the time. It was in my rotation post 9-11, so maybe I was too distracted with that to really connect with the album. So I can't call it my favorite Weezer one, but I'd for sure recommend it, especially if you only know Weezer from nowadays, the lame guys who covered Africa. You'll get to see what they used to be. My Weezer story will conclude in 2002 with Maladroit. But till then, let's move on. The final chart topper in this episode had a run of two weeks and very much matched my mood at the time post 9-11. It's Elton John's then new single, I Want Love. Don't feel nothing, I just feel cold. Don't feel nothing, just old scars. Now is as good a time as any to talk about the elephant in the room during this period. The September 11th attacks on the World Trade Center. Some vague recollections. When mom drove me to school that day, we were going away from downtown to uptown, and traffic was just backed up even for then going downtown. I checked in the first period, which was newspaper. I was officially in that class, but I went to choir four days a week. And my teacher, Mr. McHenry, was usually a jovial, joking character, but I saw him just glued to the TV, emotionless, just blank. I saw that the plane had hit the towers, and I just thought, man, that's a terrible mistake. There's a bad accident. Then I went to choir practice. That was my period one and two. I was in several choirs, and very little mention was made of those attacks, because back then we didn't have smartphones, so we weren't up to speed right away. 
It wasn't until I went on break and the rest of the day that I found out what really happened, a terrorist attack on American soil. Needless to say, the next week or so were quite surreal to me and to everybody. Subsequent to that, maybe before or after, saw a video on VH1 where the actor Robert Downey Jr. was lip-syncing this song. And at the time, I just thought it was some new artist. I didn't make the Elton John connection, and I certainly never heard of Robert Downey Jr. He was big in the 80s, but by the 90s, he was completely derailed by drug addictions. And this video was actually one of the first things that brought him back to the spotlight after years of rehab. So that sneaky Elton John, he got me there. It was this song, and one I'll talk about in honorable mentions, that were my post-9-11 music selections. Most of the other charts were just stuff I would have liked regardless, but this one just spoke to me. Obviously, that's not what Elton John meant when he wrote it. If you listen to the lyrics, it's about a guy who's just been broken down by love before, and he wants love, but he's not sure what kind. Something that don't mean a thing, that won't break him up or box him in. He doesn't want love that's clean and smooth, he's ready for the rougher stuff. That's not 9-11 material right there. I think for me, I just thought of the title, I want love. I just want people to love each other, to unite, to get along. Musically, it does show a revitalized Delton John. He had spent most of the 90s in overproduced adult contemporary and soundtrack land. But this one at least tried to sound like his stripped-down stuff from the 70s. And on this album and other ones in the 2000s, that's what he stuck with. And it got him a little more critical success than he'd had in several decades prior. Elton did perform this song in the concert for New York City a month after the attacks. So I'm not the only one who made that connection with those attacks. Of course, later on, it got put back in its probably original context as the second song in the Elton John musical jukebox, Rocket Man, sung from the perspective of Elton the Kid, his mother, and his stepfather. No matter where you put it, it's a good song. It was my number two song of the year behind Hash Pipe by Weezer. Now on the subject of honorable mentions to close out the show, I will say the charts from June to August were completely littered with Traveling Wilbury songs. Nothing made higher than number three, but just a little tidbit. On the subject of 9-11, the song that most reminds me of the aftermath and the day was the song at number two that week behind Kids Are Alright. U2's The Sweetest Thing, although their then-current single, Stuck in a Moment That You Can't Get Out Of, did peak at number 9 later on in the month. That was even more of a 9-11 type song for me. It's all in that title. And the song that I'm going to go out on was number 2 for two weeks in August, behind both Nick Lowe and the Foo Fighters. It was another Who song, Eminence Front, from their 1982 album, It's Hard. The song itself is really just solo Pete Townsend, just stone-cold classic and it's gotten popular use in commercials, and showed up in their concerts again. If you're ever in a bad mood, just shout out Everything Sucks in the chorus instead of Eminence Front. Maybe it won't cheer you up, but it'll make you giggle, if you're like me, which you're probably not. But anyhow, that'll do it for this week's recap of the 2000 number ones. Join me next week as I close out the year of 2001. As always, thank you for listening to Music Is My Radar.
Thank you for listening to Music Is My Radar. This is a podcast centered around music commentary and review. As such, all of the rights of the music samples that I have provided throughout the episode remain exclusive property of their respective copyright holders.